Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ASCA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne. This is episode 38. Thank you all for listening so far. It's been a, it's been a really cool journey. I've got to interview some, some really very interesting people. Um, it wouldn't have been enough to happen, though, without our sponsors, Bell Performance. So we're really lucky to partner with a company that not only makes a great product, and their products include the Nord Board, the Groin Bar, Human Track, and Force Decks, which is a dual force plate system. All the rage right now in high-performance sport. Also, it should be in schools. It should be in physiotherapy clinics. You name it. But look, they're also great people. Um, if you're in the market, you want any of these products, please reach out to them, valperformance.com. They'll have a contact us page on there. If you're not in the market, maybe you're at a conference out there, hey, go up to them and say, look, really appreciate you helping the AC out. Can you keep doing it? It's, it's cool what you're doing. Anyway, today we have Jan Legg. Jan's been the lead strength conditioning coach for the Australian women's basketball team, the Opals. Uh, done really well at the Olympics and so on since 2013. And is also working with Basketball Australia's development squad, at the Centre of Excellence in Canberra, which is the AOS. Uh, she's an Australian Strength and Conditioning, accredited Level 3 and Master Pro Structure Coach at the moment also. So she's really well credentialed. Uh, and, and I've had a lot of respect for Jan over the years. I've seen her present numerous times and, and got many good ideas from her. Anyway, today we talk physical benchmarking, e.g. how much strength do you need for a gold medal performance, warm-up strength ESD work, and her current structure with the Opals and Basketball Australia. We also get into career pathways for female S&C, differences for male and female strength and conditioning coaches. Really made me reflect on how I both coach male and female athletes and how people get started in the industry. Anyway, without giving away the show, let's get into it. Okay, so the one and only Dan Legg. Welcome aboard. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, th- thank you for being on here. Um, look, it's great to have you here, and uh, or great to have you on the podcast. I, I guess we can start uh, with you, Jan. Is just give us a little bit of background of how and why it all began for you in your in your journey in strength conditioning, um, and and where you're sort of at today, and and what you're doing today. Sure. Um, well, I guess uh, my first introduction to strength and conditioning was as an athlete, like uh, like a lot of people. So. Um, I was very fortunate to be on scholarship with the ACT Academy of Sport for hockey. Um, but unfortunately, uh, my hockey roo dreams didn't come true. Uh, but I always loved training in the gym. So I love that you could see improvements really quickly. Like you might work on a skill in hockey for months and it would take forever until you'd see that executed in a game. But um you could see the weights go up in the gym week after week so it was always really appealing to me um so then in uh, my final year of uni I had the opportunity to become uh, an intern strength and conditioning coach with Actas uh so that was awesome so that was uh it was meant to be 10 hours a week for the year uh but I think I spent way more hours than that hanging out with the SNC guys and learning from them uh and that led to an opportunity to become an intern at the AIS so um, you know, grabbed that with both hands, loved it, I spent the year there, and that was paid for a year, which was amazing. So um, basically followed around all the different strength coaches there at the time. So I think when I first started, there were eight or nine different SNCs there. So I uh, spent the year with heaps of different sports, which was awesome, and then uh, from that, thankfully, got offered a job. So 
um, spent close to 10 years at the AIS, uh, working with different sports, but always having basketball as a primary touch point. And then uh, about six months ago, I became full-time with Basketball Australia, so moved out of the AIS and started working with the all the women's programs with Basketball Australia. So we have uh, what's called our Centre of Excellence, our COE program, which is residential, so 16 to 19-year-olds, and then uh, working with the national team, the Opals, as well. Yeah, cool, cool. I love basketball as a sport myself, and uh, there's um, uh, all those field and court sports. There's, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with them, and uh, and I really think we're, we're kind of just scraping the surface of how to actually get real performance gains in-game uh, out of what we're doing with, with, with strength, strength conditioning practice. But that, that kind of brings us to our next topic is we're developing these uh, basketball, these court sport athletes. And, and I know you've done a bit of work in around the testing and sort of physical benchmarks between the juniors and the seniors. Do you, can, can you talk us through, through what those physical benchmarks might be, what, what, what sort of testing you use and how you approach that? Yeah, cool. Um, well, I guess I was sort of inspired to do this by John Mitchell. So he um, worked with rugby and developed a lot of work around benchmarking their pathway from junior through to Wallabies and looking at their strength levels. And then when he was working at the AIS, he, he did the same thing with rowing and could really clearly articulate uh, with, with the rowers, hey, gold medal performance, you're this strong. <laughs> If you're pretty close, you're hitting about this kind of relative strength marks. And uh, it actually, it worked out perfectly for him and he could demonstrate that with Kim Crow, who ended up winning gold. Um, and so then I was like looking at basketball and we basically don't, we didn't have anything that kind of mimicked that. And of course, it's a little bit different in a team sport like that and looking at, you're always going to have skill components come in and so it's not always going to be about strength. But I wanted to provide some sort of framework that we could say to a junior athlete, well, if you're looking to become an Opal one day, this is the kind of strength levels that those athletes achieve. And then in the same uh, nature, talk about their fitness levels as well and their speed on court. So basically looking at that and broke it down. Um, what I did have at our under-17s won their world championships a couple of years ago, and that's kind of, around the age of our young centre of excellence athletes. So, well, that's that's how strong, how fast, how fit you need to be for that age group. So kind of worked a little bit up from there and a little bit down. So it was a little bit of a guessing game at first to try and gather data from either um, Opal's athletes, which you can't always strength test them if you just get them in a camp, or trying to gather the data from when they're in their clubs and then uh, also looking at kids when they leave our Centre of Excellence program, how strong are they compared to when they start. Um, so just trying to collate that. When I first put it together, I sort of had five different tiers. Um, so, you know, really junior level up all the way through to Opals. And I've actually just reviewed that in the last six months and gone, maybe there's a bit too much here in terms of tiering. Maybe it's like pre-Centre of Excellence, Centre of Excellence, uh, you know, pro and then Olympics. And I don't think there's a much of a difference between our pros and Olympians. And that's where I think, you know, strength is an important aspect to basketball. It definitely helps them injury prevention performance. But because there is such that skill balance as well, I think it's there's a baseline that you need, but it doesn't necessarily continue to just progress in a linear sort of fashion. So 
Um, I sort of adjusted that and pulled that back a little bit. I was maybe getting a bit excited about getting really, really strong. And it's like, well, let's be realistic here about what they need to be able to achieve to be successful on court. So um, I think it's pretty easy for me to set for our Centre of Excellence athletes. I know exactly where they kind of need to be if they're their first year or if they're second year. Uh, and from there, I'm still tinkering around how strong they should be is um, at the top end. Uh, but in terms of fitness, that's been a little bit easier. Uh, we sort of know baseline uh, preferred standards for an opals and minimum standards if you're going to perform well through a tournament. And then I've got the centre of excellence. And uh, below that is kind of where I'm working a little bit more to try and give pathway athletes a bit of a guide. Like, okay, this is a good fitness level before you come into a program like ours. Or this is the kind of speed that you'd hope to achieve over 5 metres, 20 metres. So. It's still a work in progress. Uh, I'd like to say it's an exact science, but it's not. <laughs> but I'm just trying to look at what other sports have used and how it might be applied to, to what we're doing with our programs. Mm, cool, cool. And can you give us an example of some, some of these uh, sort of strength benchmarks and maybe the fitness benchmarks? Is What test do you use and, and what would be a good score and what would be a bad score? What would you be going, oh, we don't need to worry about this anymore. Oh, oh we need to do a little bit more work with this individual. Sure. Um, so strength-wise, uh, looking at uh, squat, 3RM, bench press, bench pull, 3RM, and a 1RM power clean. Um, so, for instance, uh, with our squat, you know, our first-year athletes, they should all be able to squat their body weight by the time they end one year of training with me. That's not even – they should all well and truly be clearing that. I would hope that, uh, you know, our top-end athletes are maybe hitting 1.4. I think I originally had that at 1.5 uh, and then kind of looking at across our squad averages, that was a little bit high. Um, so some of our centre of excellence athletes, we've got some really strong girls uh, this year and they're sort of hitting that one and a half times their body weight. And for me, I go, great, don't really need to continue to focus on strength for them. Let's work on their other qualities that are a little bit down. So um, for them, their kind of coordination, their motor patterning when they're running. Uh, so actually applying that force, that's where they need to work on a little bit. So um, it kind of helps to just shift the framework of what you program a little bit for each athlete. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. And then uh, what, what about the fitness standards? What, what do you look at there? What test do you use? Uh, so at the moment we uh we use a 20-metre sprint test with gates at 5 and 10 metres, uh, a 505, so looking at how quickly can you turn off right and left foot because uh, a lot of the time these athletes are fairly dominant on one side, so being able to turn off both feet is important. <laughs> um, and then uh, looking at the line drill, so it's kind of like a suicide, so general court coverage, uh, vertical jump. So uh, I've taken... Uh, examples from the men's program they were actually doing not just a standing pivot vertical jump but a run-in so within five meters uh, to vertical jump so looking at the difference between their standard uh, no no run-in versus a running vertical so again can they coordinate the force to get a higher jump on that aspect as so we look at the you know we've got a lot of young females now who want to be able to dunk the basketball but it's actually a timing and skill to be able to run and jump and time everything to get there. So trying to help that, encouraging that through our testing as well. And then uh, a yo-yo. So um, 
basic fitness standard. <laughs> how how fit are you across a yo-yo? So that's sort of what we look at with our girls. Yeah, awesome, awesome. No, no, and it's one of the one of the approach jumps. Approach jump testing is is really something that I'm really interested in. And you can have a, a brilliant uh, counter movement jump, but can't, you aren't able to coordinate it with a with a run in. Uh, yeah. Then there's there's oh, it, it says hey go and go and do some uh, running running jumps you know what I mean go and do some approach yeah. jumps is what you need to do. It's actually yeah it's really cool it's kind of changed how we program some of our jumps in the gym for the girls this year because yeah literally some of them can only really jump well when they jump off two feet which mm-hmm. isn't ideal so it's like okay we just have to practice this it's kind of like they've never done it before which you know it seems a little crazy but maybe it's just you know that that's not how they train as juniors they're not doing their driving hard to the basket uh, i'm not sure but yeah it's it's definitely a skill and we'll hopefully can improve that <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and do, do you just use something like a vertex for that or, or how do you set up yeah. the test with, with that yeah we just use a vertex uh try and keep it as simple as possible <laughs> and, and yeah it's easy to set up and we can do it any day on the courts if we want to but usually we're testing three to four times a year okay awesome awesome um the other thing i was going to ask you about you've done some research jen i i kind of stalked i can't remember whether i found this on research gate or where i found it but there's like some research pieces about the variability of kinematics over a season and uh the the differences that that come through there can you, can you talk us through more about that what might change over the season what might stay constant what you actually looked at um and, sure. and what factors you, you still use? Yeah, so this is, uh, I guess, some research I did for my master's a few years ago. Um, so originally I was kind of looking at uh, counter-movement jumps uh, using gym wear and looking at that every week through a season. So I wanted to see if the season dramatically affected their jumps, if they got fatigued. Um, you know, it was pretty high workload for us, our athletes at certain times during the season. Um, and basically what we found was that their performance didn't change through the season. So even when they were really, really tired and I could look at their total training loads, they were scored, like telling me they were tired, they could still pretty much achieve the same jump outcome. So they could still hit their 40, 50-minute centimetre vertical jump with, with a broomstick on their back. But what did change is uh, how long they took to dip into that, so their eccentric duration. So they changed the mechanics of their jump to get that performance outcome um do i still (laughs) measure that all the time now no uh i've now i've kind of moved on and i'm more interested in looking at uh if we look at throughout the year maybe three or four times throughout the year are we seeing actual shifts in performance when we look at it that frequently Yes, they're tired sometimes. Yes, their dip increases, but it wasn't enough to uh, dramatically change what we'd give them through a week. It's pretty hard to say to a coach, oh, look, their the eccentric duration is up very minimal, like it has extended really minimally. So can you change your training plan? It's like, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So, I mean, we're still using, um, still monitoring the athletes, but you're more using an RPE base now. And then just looking for performance shifts in their in their counter movement jump, um, and I've probably moved away from gym wear a little bit, uh, and using when we do that, going to a force platform, uh, dual force platform, looking side to side differences, um, 
So I guess the, the big thing I'm interested in at the moment is all these basketball players have a dominant leg. Uh, and so there, there will be differences in their force production side to side and their landing forces. Um, but what's acceptable? So we tend to only measure after they've been injured. And of course, there's a massive difference. But then how close do we need to bring that back to equal side to side? So that's kind of something that's interesting me a little bit at the moment. Um, but I was very early stages of researching that and can't tell you much more than that at this point. <laughs> yeah, sure. If you had a sort of uh, which way you were leaning or what side of the fence you were going to sit on, what would, would you say is it like, is it what's the difference? Is it like a ten percent difference between limbs? Is it like a fifteen? Is it like a twenty? Where where would you be leaning at the moment? Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. Like you look through the the research, and if you're rehabbing an athlete, they always sort of talk about trying to bring it back within ten percent. Um, and I think that's a a good goal. But I'm seeing around fifteen to twenty percent differences in some of my athletes when they're not injured and have never been injured, and so it's like well. I mean, is that a precursor for injury or is that just, I guess it's like, well, how much do we want to worry about that, I suppose? <laughs> and that's where I'm not sure. And that's, that's, I guess we're just trying to collect data over a couple of years now and then maybe we can look back at it and determine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my own experience, like uh, working with track and field jumpers, obviously they've got one dominant leg, which is their takeoff leg. And yeah. the difference is in a healthy athlete, um, I'm just putting my, for the listeners out, I'm putting my hands up doing like speech marks, quotation marks as I'm talking here. But the difference in a healthy athlete, like it, it can be huge, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, mean it, there might be an issue there. They just might have had more and more reps through that through that, um, through that that leg. But then on, at the same time, I kind of feel like maybe it is a good thing if we balance them out a little bit just so long as yeah. they don't lose anything in the in that takeoff leg just so long as they're not yeah. going backwards um would be my sort of philosophy on it um look i've, I've seen you at a, a number of conferences jan um and one of the ones that i remember a lot was like a warm-up uh lecture you and emily nolan gave um yeah. if, if i'm i'm incorrect here uh, it was like mobilize activate and stimulate uh was, yeah. the, was the title or the or the theme of it um Run us, run us through it. What, 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 is, uh, what are you doing there? How, how are you prepping your athletes? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely going back a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was a long time ago with Emily. Um, this yeah, is, like, so this they, is like bringing up a Facebook feed from 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. See what clothes you're wearing and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My hair was shorter and I had more attitude. No, um, I guess, yeah, I think at the time we were sort of uh, – Back at that period of time, we sort of saw that a lot of uh, opportunities were being wasted where um, maybe SNCs at the time weren't utilising that warm-up period to be the most effective they could be. Um, so we were just trying to say, like, hey, going for a 20-minute, 10-minute jog is, is great, but it doesn't really upskill them on anything that you're trying to work on. And I think I still carry those principles forward today. So um, some basics around... Uh, you know, if we look at it at a week for our basketball athletes, I've got them in the gym typically three times a week. Um, at least one to two of those warm-ups will be barefoot, uh, just basically because I know if I do some barefoot training with these athletes, they're less likely to have uh, ankle injuries. So we've reduced the number of ankle injuries we have with these athletes bar when they land on someone else's foot. Uh, and then 
depending on the type time of the year, one or two, the warm-ups might be more running mechanics focus. Because these guys all come up learning how to play basketball but not really uh, looking at how they run. Um, so it's kind of picking out deficiencies that we can make that kind of generic five to ten minute warm-ups as uh, useful as possible, not time wasted. Um, and then from there I'll go into a more of a specific prep warm-up for the, for the session to come. So uh, whether that be focusing in on a couple of injury prevention sites or it might be, okay, we're doing uh, heavy squats today, but I want to make sure your glutes are fired up before we get to that squat. So we'll do some lateral band walks, uh, which works well for basketball because they're always in a defensive position as well um, or something like that. So trying to think what's, what are we preparing for? How can we best prepare for the session to come? So that's how I try and break it down a little bit in that warm-up. Mm, cool, cool. Can you give us an example of what, say, the running mechanics warm-up would be? What, what would you do with them? And then even an example of what you do with the barefoot-type uh, warm-ups as well. It would be really interesting. Uh, sure. So the running mechanics is kind of like almost taking you back to your really uh, basic athletics 101 so it's simple patterning drills um, a lot of these guys just aren't really aware of where their legs are and what's happening with their foot contacts at all so it's really simple things like breaking it down to ankle bounces some low high knees single leg high knees some a skips um, wall running but then incorporating that into run through so okay can you hold a position with your hips when we then try and run um and then like working on their defensive footwork as well it's like it, it's kind of astounding how they they don't necessarily know how to pivot well even when they get here at 16 so we try and break it down and and just you know get them into positions we might have someone pushing them and you, and you have to hold your position with one foot, the other foot can move. But how do you find a strong position still pivoting off that foot? And then can you do that? But when I call go, do a defensive slide to move really quickly. So it's a bit of reactivity, a bit of fun, as well as um, trying to get the body positions that they might not be totally familiar with. Um, in terms of the barefoot stuff, it's it's really simple. Like can you walk on the on your toes, on the outside of your foot, on the inside of the foot, just working on uh, simple intrinsics uh, to get your foot turned on. So these guys wear either brace or tape every single training session they have on court. So basically all those muscles in their feet become a little bit weak. Um, so if we take that off, we can do it on squidgy mats or we're really fortunate in the gym we have a springboard. So, again, it's a lot of things like ankle bounces, single leg hops. Can they cycle their foot and land in a good position? So when you're not wearing shoes, it, it kind of hurts if you, if you don't land in a very good position on your foot. So you can't kind of mask it. Um, and then balance, simple balance, like can you stand on one leg? Uh, you know, we can do our mobility exercise on one leg on that surface, close your eyes and suddenly you have to balance a little bit harder and work a little bit harder to make that work. So um it's probably nothing too uh, too novel, but it's just making sure that they spend time learning about foot contact in a fairly safe and unlikely to hurt their feet, but getting used to producing force off their feet without their shoes on. Mm, so. Mm. so important for the bigger humans too. 
with, uh, <laughs> with, with basketball. That's, uh, that was actually one thing I was going to ask you. It just popped up in my mind. Like, but there's a lot of sort of literature sort of saying you want to have a squat around two times your body weight um, as, a, as, a, as a marker. Uh, and, then, and then you kind of suggest for your girls, 1.4, 1.5 seems to be enough. It's, is that because they are larger? Is it, what, what do you think those, that difference might be between, between those? Yeah, I mean, it might be because they're larger. I mean, some of our, our bigs, our centres, uh, you know, 100 kilos plus. Um, so if you're looking to work towards a 200 kilo squat to range, like I just, I don't know about you, but I'm not seeing that many athletes. Like you have to devote time to that, a lot of time to that. And when we look at our athletes, they rarely have an off season. So they have an off season when they're hurt basically is what it comes down to. They go roll from one contract to the next. Um, so really what I'm just trying to do is make them robust enough to last through that. And usually they'll be robust enough if they're around that strength level that they can continue season to season. It's when that drops off from there that we start to see the injuries creep in. And that's when we get a time to work on strength, which is great. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I just... And maybe maybe I'm just letting my standards slip, but I just have not that many athletes around that two times body weight. I would have to devote so much more time to their strength training, which we just don't have. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what well, about yeah. your athletes? <laughs> Are they hitting that, or am I? Uh, no. So, so when I've done some work with say uh, China's women's national team, um, yeah, no, there'd be. It wouldn't be wouldn't be close to two times body weight, so, um, and and maybe the, the volleyball team, um, the women's volleyball team, which were actually a, a far more athletic group and uh, did better at the Olympics, and then that they were actually uh, on on the whole much stronger than than the basketball team, um, but it, it yeah. might just be a case of the sport, how much training they were able to do, and, and so on, a, a few other factors, but yeah, it's. Uh, for for the women's uh, the women's uh, court sports like that the tall women's court sports yeah I I maybe I haven't um, I haven't been around them enough either uh, yeah. to really comment um, so I, I wanted to sort of get now into your kind of like nitty gritty what does a session look like what perhaps a session example Jan Legger a person comes to see you uh, fit as anything or well, a young basketball I should say is fit as anything jump through the roof, but they're not that strong. What is the strength and conditioning session going to look like for that person? Or, or even just a typical person? What, what, do you, what does a normal strength and conditioning session look up? You've got your running mechanic warm-up, you've got your barefoot warm-up, and, and then what do you kind of flow into from there? Um, I guess from there I usually flow into some, like, uh, general kind of specific, general specific prep. That's a terrible term. Uh, but, you know, if, I, if they're really healthy and there's no major issues, uh, looking at, basics for basketball so you've got to have good calf strength you've got to have good lateral movement and typically with at least with the female athletes you've got to make sure your hamstrings are strong so we know that that helps prevent knee injuries so in my warm-ups i usually have some sort of calf work whether that's dynamic or strength just depends on the day uh some lateral work whether that be just band lateral walks or resisted um and then it depends if they have some sort of shoulder injury or some sort of activation work in that prep work as well. So that, usually I'll ha have like two to four simple exercises like that. It doesn't take a huge amount of time, but it's just setting them up for the session to come. Um, and then it's like, well, 
I like the Olympic der- derivatives. Can they hang clean, uh, push press, hang snatch? I tend not to do full cleans with these guys, uh, just the power um, derivatives. Uh, and then looking at your baseline, we're going to have a couple of big lifts for a day. So uh, either a big lower body lift like a squat or a and then usually a big upper body lift as well. Maybe it's bench press or bench pull, depending on the day. And then some accessory work from there. So accessory work is typically going to hit the hamstrings, even if the big lift's been a hamstring exercise, we'll hit hamstrings again, just looking at this population. Uh, and then, um, you know, a couple of accessory upper body lifts as well. Um, that's kind of, I guess, breakdown of my session. Uh, it, I tend to most of the year train full body. So it's just breaking that down across the week. We'll typically train uh, regardless of where in season or not. Uh, we'll try and get three strength sessions done in the week um, and then uh, just base that up and down with the volume and change it every – I try and change the programs every four weeks or so. Um, some stuff stays in there all year round. Like you're gonna probably going to back squat almost all year round. Um, you're going to be doing some sort of bench variation, pull variation all year round. So it's just changing enough to to keep uh, to keep it interesting for the athlete, but to give them a slightly different stimulus. Hey team, I just want to take a brief break to mention Val Performance, great sport of the ACA, and obviously this podcast, as I mentioned at the start. All their products, if you're not familiar with them, they all combine advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, analytics to help you make decisions about performance, asymmetries, injury risk. The most important thing about their products, though, they're all really easy to use, fast and reliable. They've recently added four sticks to their stable of products, which is hands down the best dual force plate system in the world. Valve Performance four sticks, they've got this reputation in elite sport, research, clinical practice. They successfully balance the combination being evidence-based, functional, easy to use. Look, they're not just for elite sport. Could be a physio practice, could be a private strength conditioning coach, it could be a school sports academy, it could be a track and field coach. You should definitely consider looking at their products. Make sure you check out valperformance.com or check them out on their socials. So that's really interesting. One thing I actually was going to ask you is with your sort of strength and power programs, considering these these people are like running jumping athletes and they do a heck of a lot of jumping and technical training how much jumping do you do in the sort of strength and power sessions with them um do you touch on it a little bit or is it things jumping that they're not doing on the court or is it how do you how do you figure that out uh it just uh, it depends with my junior athletes i do a fair bit um because that they generally they can jump but they can't land so we'll start with the basics with teaching them how to land properly uh, just in terms of injury prevention. So we'll do some altitude jumps, start double leg, progress to single, progress to getting hit, that sort of thing. Uh, But then I do do a fair bit with the juniors, um, at least, uh, you know, some body uh, body weight kind of variety exercise at least every session and then usually some sort of loaded activity, um, whether it be a clean, push press, et cetera, on the other. it's not a huge amount of volume, but it's for these guys, like I said, you know, they can't always uh, coordinate running and jumping. So we've got to practice that. <laughs> so, so applying that force in the right way. So I think that's, it's fairly safe. It's not a huge amount of volume, particularly if we look at 
across the week how many jumps they do compared to how many they do with me. Uh, it's pretty low. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important. Some of my more senior Opals athletes, we don't do a lot just because they're a bit beaten up. So if they're going to be doing impact loading, uh, I want that to be on the court because that's where they need to perform. And so I'm, some of them I leave, leave that alone a little bit in the gym so we don't add load on load. Um, but that's, that's more the athletes that have uh, issues with their, their knees or um, have had a history, a long history of uh, injuries, etc. So, yeah, mm. very. Yeah, 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 for sure. Horses for courses approach. And there can't be a, a one-size-fits-all there. Um, yeah. So talk strength and power. What about energy systems? What, what do you, you get your yo-yo, then what, what do you do with the yo-yo results? How do you, how do you kind of program uh, energy systems from there? Yeah, so um, with the Centre of Excellence at the moment, we're doing some uh, MAS work. Um, so we've sort of identified as a group that their yo-yo scores weren't great at the back end of last year. So it's something that we really want to develop with them this year. Um, so twice a week we're doing MAS sessions that literally only take 10 to 15 minutes just based off their yo-yo score. Um, it's just a series of intervals just over the length of the yo-yo, so 20 metres out and back. Um, some extended intervals of 20 seconds, 15 and then down to 10 seconds. And we just work within a range of 100% of their max aerobic speed up to 120% of their max aerobic speed. Um, so we're doing that for a block of eight weeks. Uh, just they're sort of in pre-season right now, so we can afford to do that. And hopefully that will set them up that they can then hold that fitness across the season. Um, but it's because it's such a short duration, it doesn't add a huge taxing load to them. Uh, if we need to do top-ups again, we can um it's the coaches kind of enjoy it i think a little bit because if we have any players out and so they can't do a whole lot of full court running or players are modified for whatever reason they can add this in we can do it at the end of a training session or sometimes we've done it as a fatiguing element for some skills but usually because they are juniors we're chucking it at the end so it's just a little bit of a finisher um, to upskill their or hopefully get their aerobic capacity up a little bit uh, and then it's a fair bit of off-leg work apart from that. So uh, they do spend two to three hours a day on court. So apart from that, we're taking them off either pool or bike, rowing, et cetera, for the rest of the, any further additioning work or conditioning work on top of that. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned briefly about the sort of, uh, fatiguing them before skills or because they're younger, you're doing it after after skills at the moment. How, do, how does it, um, your sort of strength and power and energy uh, system sessions, how do they kind of fit in with the weekly schedule that they have there for the basketball? Like do you, how many do you do each week? Where do, where do they kind of sit before or after? Uh, yeah, so on Mondays, uh, actually at the moment for in terms of their strength work, it's great. So Mondays they do it in the afternoon, but they've only had individual sessions before that. So it might be 40 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour with the coach. It's not, it's not a lot of full court running or anything before that. But then we do do the yo-yo top up straight after. So there's a little bit of interference there from one to the other. Uh, Wednesday mornings is a standalone and they have the afternoon pretty much off. So that's probably my hardest gym session is will be on a Wednesday because I know that I, it's for sort of 
not interfered with with any court work, etc. And then Friday mornings uh, we have another lift and that usually they just go into some volume shooting after that. So, again, it's not too bad. Uh, and then we'll, in terms of the extra conditioning session, usually we'll add that on. Um, so we'll have that on Monday after weights and then on the Thursday when they finish their core training. So after a couple of hours of core training, we'll do that. Terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's easy. It's 15 minutes. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome that, that's such a good insight to the um to what you're running there Jan. really good information and uh, just how you sort of approach the um like the benchmarking of physical standards then how you prep them and what you do strength and power and how it all fits together it really is um moving on i want to talk about the aiss rehabilitation program and i know you've been involved in it um and just wanted to talk about like the nature of of, of the work um Again, looking at perhaps things you assess or things you look at, and uh, perhaps an example of, of, and you don't need to name who, like who's been in there, but example of sort of what what went right, what did you learn from it, and and uh, and how's it kind of uh, modified what you do now? Uh, sure. So, uh, I mean, the AIS program is awesome, and thankfully, I can still uh, tap into that as as a basketball Australia staff member. Um, but the really cool thing with AIS is basically if if the uh, like a athlete gets injured and they need help and they need to come in and get the services around them, that's what AIS can provide. So it's everything: it's strength and conditioning, it's physio, it's doctors, it's nutrition, it's biomechanics. Um, it provides everything within walking distance for an athlete. So most of the time, athletes will either live on site or live nearby and then they have access to the dining hall as well. So it's it's just trying to create that uh, full gamut of everything you can possibly do to make this athlete better uh, in a time-efficient manner is available to them for them. Um, so, I've, yeah, I've had a few athletes through that program, a um, couple of ACL athletes, uh, and then uh, more recently as well, uh, hamstring repair. Uh, so one of my athletes, I actually talked at the Canberra SIG uh, last week about her. She she had four operations in the space of 18 months, uh, so slightly older athlete, but hamstring repair, followed that up with a labral repair on the other side, uh, an ankle surgery, and then uh, unfortunately that first hamstring uh, needed another repair. So. I guess uh, every time we've been able to get her back up to sport in quite tight timeframes. Um, and the really cool thing about the AIS is, I mean, previously she lived in an environment where she didn't have the support to progress that rehab very quickly, just limited uh, sports services. She's sort of seeing a generic physio or, um, you know, a normal GP instead of a sports doctor, and that's where we can come in and kind of help these athletes out. Um, so, yeah, I think for the most part we've had really good success just because it is that kind of, well, this becomes your life, rehabbing this uh, as successfully as we can, training multiple times per day with me, but then having all the recovery resources that you need to make it happen. So, yeah, it's it's an awesome program and um, we've had, for the most part, really good results, but then, of course, sometimes things don't go well. Um, so one of our athletes just, went through the whole process of rehabbing her ACL, so nine months, played her first game, it was fantastic, played the second game and the graft failed, so re-ruptured that ACL. So um, 
and that's where we have a I cried a little bit, I won't lie, but then it's like, okay, critical review, what did we do well with, what did we do poorly, how can we help this athlete get up, be in better position next time. So um, we sort of looked through everything in our program from last time. We had uh, not only the people that were involved in the case but some external um, providers come in and look and review and assess what we did and uh, you know, basically the outcome was we did everything we could and we got unlucky, Is which is, a t- uh, like, I'm not fully satisfied with that answer. But, uh, I, and then the other thing was, well, maybe her hamstring strength wasn't quite as high as it needed to be. Uh, you know, it is still stronger than it ever been before, but she was still very much a quad dominant athlete. So trying to look at this time around, we can't let that happen again. So how do we make sure that her hamstring strength even higher this time. There's any rehab, it's um, making sure that they're a better athlete than they were before. And obviously that wasn't enough this time. So, oh, yeah. Sure. So, yeah. How do you assess the hamstrings? Like uh, obviously all those uh, that you've given us examples of, the hamstring graph and the ACLs, you're going to be looking at the hamstrings uh, pretty in depth yeah. there. How, how have you been assessing the hamstrings down there? What, what have you been looking at? and then into the- uh, so our physiotherapy tests are like an isokinetic uh, strength test in terms of quad hamstring ratio. Uh, and then we look at their concentric peak torque and their isometric peak torque as well. Um, so looking at that and then uh, through the gym, just looking at their basic assessments of, you know, how much they're able to do RDLs, deadlifts, um, hamstring curls I don't love hamstring curls but you know can you complete those um, basic Nordic patterns etc so looking at that we don't have a Nord board but that could definitely add some value at looking at these things look the sponsor um, of this podcast is actually valid performance <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk to them and see what they can yeah, do yeah. surely they I can think that, that would be really out. cool to add so yeah if they could send one our way uh Basel Australia we'd very much appreciate that right, there you go <laughs> There you go. Maybe you'll get the conversation started anyway. Yeah. Um, cool. The other thing, actually, the other thing I remember um, from sort of interactions within the past year is you, you've been on a couple of study tours where you've gone overseas and you've looked at uh, how different countries are doing things and and uh, seeing what they're doing good, what they're doing, uh, and, and comparing that to what we're doing here in Australia or Australasia. Um, what would be the biggest differences between sort of Australia's sort of strength and conditioning performance practices and what you've seen overseas? Yeah, so it's been um, – uh, I've been to the States a few times more recently um, just with work because our head coach, Sandy, is based in the US. Uh, so I've been there recently. But a while ago, sort of when I first started out in strength and conditioning in the first few years, I went over and checked out uh, INSEP in, uh, in Paris and as well as the Spanish kind of system, Institute of Sport, um, and I think they were the main two. So it was interesting, uh, you know, at INSET, they were huge on their school system. It was really well integrated. So, again, they had residential programs for junior athletes uh, where everything was involved, but then they also had their schooling that was just set up for those athletes. So it was really online-based, very interactive, in that sense. So it's kind of something where Australia does well, but our athletes still kind of have to fit in with our school system 
whatever school they happen to choose to go to, whereas this was kind of set up for those athletes specifically. So that was a really cool element. Um, their actual strength and initiating side of things uh, wasn't hugely qualified. A lot of the time it was the sports coaches just taking the SNC. They had all the facilities they needed, um, but I, I, I wasn't taking a lot away from their SNC and going, oh, we need to implement that here. It was more like, oh, maybe we are doing things right in Australia, which was nice. Uh, and then... Uh, in Spain, it was the same. So uh, at that time, so it is going back maybe close to 10 years now, but uh, their facilities were amazing and every sport had uh, their SNC facilities linked directly to their sport facilities. So they'd walk off the basketball court and their gym was right there. So really simple things that makes it user-friendly. Um, but the level of SNC support was just so varied. A lot of the time it was like, oh, well, they all do this program. And it was like, oh, okay, but you've got 20, 20 athletes here. Yeah, but they all do this program. And even for like the swimming program, they'd, they'd be doing different events, but they'd all still do the same program. So I, I kind of walked away from those experiences thinking, you know, like, um, the education that we have here for our SNCs through the ASCA, through the unis, is really good and that's hopefully setting up better practices for what we're doing, which was really encouraging. Um, and then through the yes, through the USA, I guess it really just so varies depending on the program. Like you've got some great SNCs out there. I don't think they're accreditations to the standard of the ASCA with their multiple choice tick the box and you're accredited <laughs> but you do have excellent SNCs out there just uh just the standard varies so much between colleges so I've got a fair few basketball players playing colleges at the moment and some of them have great support some of them have poor which I guess is probably the same here in Australia if you go to a different uh club you might get really good support or nothing at all so um yeah it, what can I say? <laughs> it depends on the scenario. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. I, I always, like having worked in China for sort of three years, I always found it interesting sort of reflecting on what we thought were doing really well and, and what I kind of learned over there and, and what they did and differences around certain things and really similar system like strength and conditioning probably even wasn't an industry in China until maybe just before 2008, like, and it's still quite common practice for the team coaches to take strength conditioning or the assistant coaches to take strength conditioning, yeah. even at a, in a high-priority sport. Um, and so, uh, yeah, no, it, was, it definitely gives you some things to reflect on and, and know, okay, well, perhaps we are doing a pretty good job here and, uh, yeah. and uh, not doing too bad. The next, thing I, the next thing I want to ask you about is strength conditioning is a really, really, really male-dominated industry. Um, you've definitely been like at the forefront of uh, females in, in Australasian sort of strength conditioning. I, we talked about your background and and getting into the sort of industry. Um, what? How would you recommend females get into strength conditioning to start off? And uh, and then how do they how do they progress their career from there? Yeah, and I, you know, it definitely is a male-dominated industry. I remember when I first started and I went up to my first conference with ASCA and they, literally I could count the female coaches there on one hand, um, which was really, it was kind of bad, I suppose. And the really cool thing now is though, uh, you know, 
this year's or last year's ASCA, we had over 50 women there, which is really good. So it's obviously people are realising that, hey, it's an industry path, whereas maybe uh, 10, 20 years ago, there weren't that many opportunities uh, or maybe they just didn't perceive there were opportunities because there was a lot of the paid positions were maybe in rugby, uh, AFL, union, etc. Where And probably at that time, a lot of it was, well, I used to play rugby, so now I'll become a strength coach, which kind of <laughs> eliminated a lot of the opportunities as well. So I think it's really cool now we look at how many professional sports there are, uh, not to say that women have to work with women or men with men, but I think it's great that just generally there's more opportunities if you want to be a strength coach. Um, I think in general, uh, you know, you've got to volunteer your time at some point, which, you know, always sucks a little bit. It's like a question of how long do you volunteer for? But, uh, you know, if we look at people applying for jobs and I've been fortunate enough that they, when I was at the AIS to be on the interview panel for a few positions there, the biggest discriminator that we can have with people is, well, do they have the experience? Yes or no? Because so many universities are offering master's degrees in strength and conditioning now. So that's almost like a given. Do you have a, a tertiary qualification? If you don't, you're probably not, probably not going to even apply for most positions. So do you have that? And then it's like, well, what experience do you have from there? So mostly that's volunteering or getting an internship um, and then putting in the hours, forming the relationships with people. I don't think it really matters whether you're a young uh, male or female coach. It's hard. I don't envy young coaches at the moment. It's a saturated market. There's not that many paid positions and there's lots of people who are coming out of their uh, with master's degrees and still no experience, though. So that would be my one major tip. While, you, while you're studying, volunteer somewhere, get to know people. You know, it's in, it's a people industry. You need to know people to get your jobs, to give you a good word. It's still a relatively small industry. So if, uh, if you know someone who can give a good word for you, chances are they'll, they'll get caught up and, and it'll work in your favour. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Is there, do, do you think there's, and I don't want to sound, um, I'm not being sexist by any means here, but do you think um, that female SNC coaches are better are better with groups of female sports, for instance, female basketball versus male, and, and is it vice versa as well? Is, are males better suited to coaching males rather than dealing with females um, versus in the past it was like a male would take care of of say females, whatever they were just the strength and listening coach. But is is there a is it is it better suited in, in, in certain cases? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't really coach men and women all that differently. So when I first started, I was coaching the men's basketball program um, that had some who players who have now gone on and done really great things in you know, competing at the highest level which is awesome, and, but I don't think I've necessarily changed my approach that much when I'm coaching men versus women. Um, I think, you know, it's all about the relationship you form with those athletes. I, I don't know, maybe like, and maybe you can answer this, If is, is like, do you coach men differently? Like, are you yelling at them more or anything like that? For me, it didn't really change. I have expectations of my training sessions 
and either you're meeting them or you're not and it really doesn't matter what your gender is <laughs> and I think it, for me it was always just making that really clear like if you set your expectations early uh, the athletes know that and they you know hopefully they buy into why you have that if you can explain what those expectations are and why and get them to buy in then it's easy coaching's easy it's when uh, when they're not set doesn't you always get a trouble a trouble athlete a difficult athlete that maybe doesn't buy in it either they they're just a baller they don't care about s and c it's like well how can you help to try and educate them around that um but to me yeah i i don't think it's more suited one way or, or the other um it might i don't know if there's bigger differences in some of the sports where you know, culture is always going to, be, going to be a huge thing. So it's just understanding the culture of that sport and those athletes and trying to understand that before you come in and burn bridges and piss too many people off, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you can, I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that as well. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I, I'm just trying to reflect on it now. And, and to be honest, I, I probably don't do a terribly much different between between sexes either it's uh yeah you have those expectations as you say and it's uh look this is what we'd like to get out of it um uh, and yeah maybe i'm a bit softer with females than i might be with males um as just a maybe a respect thing as well that's actually another thing that i've thought about it's like i I even think about it with uh like rugby league or, or or rugby union or football is like having female referees because there's like a, I'm less likely to go to go if I'm a player. Come on, what what sort of decision was that? You know what I mean? If it's if it's a female in charge, and so that that was another thing I kind of wondered with with uh, being a female S and C is is there a the the players approach you differently, especially when you're dealing with males than than potentially uh, other male counterparts. I don't know. Because it's an interesting one being softer, right? Because like some of my athletes, particularly at Opals, I'll get them for periods of time and we'll work with them and then they'll go off to their pro clubs or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> one of my athletes actually sort of said to me, oh, you know, I you know, finished that block with you and I went and trained uh, with my new SNC coach in my club and I realised I wasn't, uh, suddenly didn't have to rush or be on edge because you weren't going to be like, I, you weren't, I wasn't going to hear this voice like, you know, when are you doing your next set? Or like kind of, come on, let's go up and wait. And I was like, ah, like it's really nice that she, uh, you know, respects or doesn't respect me enough to tell me that and kind of take the piss out of me a little bit. But I think um, I'm hard on all my athletes in a way that hopefully it's still enjoyable. Um, but then it's like picking your athlete. You all know the athlete that if you if you absolutely uh, crush them in front of the group, you won't get a response from them potentially for the next month. So it's like knowing that that athlete won't respond well if you pick on them in front of everyone. But then you've got your other athletes who won't respond unless you ex- ex- make an example out of them or what have you. So I think it's you know it comes down to that basic kind of trying to know and understand how your athletes uh, work and think and then going from there I, uh, in general I've had some uh, male athletes at first they kind of tiptoe around and they call you miss sorry miss and it's like no I have a name you can use it it's cool um, but I think that breaks down pretty quickly when they realize I'm just here to 
make you better. So how can we how can we make that happen? So yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. Uh, very interesting, very interesting discussion, and uh, probably something could be talked about for a whole lot longer than than what it is. Um, I want to get into it's, it's been really great, Jan, so far. Like this, especially that first stuff about the sort of setting up what you look, your setup, what you look at, what you sort of base things off, physical stand, and so on. I want to finish up with some quick fire questions, though, and maybe we've already touched on these in the discussion, but uh, we're just going to do two or three of these, and they can be one word answers if you want. Uh, no you, can, you can elaborate you can chew my ear off it's 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 no uh, <laughs> no, no worries i've got lots of time here um first one jan leg next 12 months what are you most excited to be uh developing yourself or looking into or educating yourself with or what topic um uh, next 12 months uh next 12 months are gonna be hectic so we're leading into 2020 um, so over the next 12 months, we have to uh, qualify. So I'll be honest that that's going to consume a lot of time for Opals-wise. But the kind of side project I've got going on, I've got an honor student at the moment, Riley McGowan, who's uh, looking at three-on-three and the physical demands of that. Uh, so three-on-three basketball has just been included in the Olympics. So Australia still has to qualify. Um, but I imagine the question is coming like uh, the, I'll get asked to condition those athletes or prepare some of those athletes. So he's looking at player load, GPS. Um, So that's kind of exciting for me. It's something a bit different um, and to see what those physical demands are. Mm, Cool, cool. Yeah, for people uh, that aren't aware, three-on-three basketball will be in the Olympics in Tokyo um, and uh, I'm sure it'll be fun to watch. Yeah. You've gone to a conference, seminar, some type of presentation, whatever, maybe it's a C group. What's been one thing that springs to mind where you go, boom, I can I need to change something tomorrow or I need to use that tomorrow or I can apply that immediately? What would be the first thing that springs to your mind in, in that instance? Uh, so I think like a couple of the really cool ones that I listened to, uh, Martin Boucher, uh, when he presented uh, a while ago when a and I was still a pretty young SNC coach at the time and listening to his uh, work on maximal aerobic speed, I was like, well, that just makes sense. <laughs> I need to be doing that with my athletes. Um, so that was a really awesome one. Uh, I think um, I really enjoyed listening to Matt Wenning when he presented the ASCA a few years ago just because, I mean, just from a pure strength perspective, how do we get, athletes strong and I mean he came through the sort of west side mentality he did that's how he did his training which you know maybe isn't a directly I'm not directly taking everything from that and replying it to athletes but how can we take part of that and still get our athletes as strong as quickly as possible so I really like that stuff as well hmm. so that's, that's quite interesting so Based on that, would, would you, because obviously Westside have a dynamic day, a repeated day, a, a maximum day. Um, yeah. Do, do you use those, fit those components into your strength and power work currently? Uh, yeah, in off-season uh, in particular. Um, it, whenever I have an opportunity to go to four strength sessions a week, I absolutely employ those methods. Uh, and then when it's two or three strength sessions, I still try and have that dynamic quality versus uh, max effort 
quality. So trying to hit that high intensity lifting every week in, week out. Uh, not necessarily the failure every week, but pretty high intensity. Uh, and then having some, how do you apply this speed element to that too, for sure. And then the big thing with a lot of the junior female athletes is they don't have a lot of muscle mass. So having that rep day, that kind of higher rep day, uh, yeah, incorporating that as well. Mm, cool, 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 cool. Um, next question. What would be your number one gifted resource for an aspiring coach? Could be a book, can be a um, can be an online course, or just some type of resource. What What would be the if if if, if someone guess, turned up to you and, and you go, okay, this is what I'm going to give them. What would it be? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. That's a really hard question. I think probably the best resource for a young coach is a really great mentor. So if I can give, like, liaison with a mentor that it would help them with whatever kind of skill sets they need to get better at, I think that's that's a, that's a the best possible thing. It's way better than reading one article and then uh, you're on your own. So I'm, I'm kind of dodging the question, I know. <laughs> Sorry. Get off <laughs> the fence, think... Dan. Get off the fence. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, that's the best thing that they could have is the a mentor that they can continue to bounce off and learn off and challenge uh, for six to 12 months rather than just a one-off. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going to add, add to this since you sat on the fence there. I'm going to be, I'm going to be <laughs> mean to you. What, who, who's been a mentor for you and then how they challenged you to improve or, or what's, what, what's been the um, biggest thing that they've helped you with? Sure. Uh, I've had heaps of mentors over the years. Um, uh, probably Tim Rogers when I first started working with basketball was really good uh, I still bounce ideas off him a little bit now but even though we're not in the same country uh, but then people like Ross Smith and uh, Julian Jones have been massive in my career uh, and then uh, Johnny Mitchell has kind of come in and out at different times as well I think they Jules was probably the one that challenged me most on um, like uh, testing you know, the relationship side of things, if I was testing that and getting the most out of my athletes in that way. Uh, Ross is probably, uh, you know, upskilling me and checking me on uh, different exercise variation and speed developments and not just in the gym but on the court. Uh, so that was really good. Uh, but I still bounce off for those guys all the time, which I'm very fortunate to do. Mm-hmm. Who's who of Australian strength and conditioning right there? Um, great, great people to learn off, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, John, okay, so that's it. Thank you so much. If people are interested, and I'm sure they will be, how do they get more information out of you or from you or about you? Uh, well, I'm terrible on all social media platforms, but I, I do use Instagram, so you can uh, message me via my Instagram. Or hit me up with the old-fashioned email, so jan.leg at basketball.net.au. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Check out the Insta. <laughs> what, what's the handle? Uh, at Jan Leg? Uh, Janleg85. Janleg85. Are we giving away the date of birth there, are we? What's going on? <laughs> That's yeah, right. Awesome, awesome. Dan, look, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for the information you've shared with us today. It's given like it, it's stuff that you just don't come across every day and, and we're really lucky to hear that type of uh, insight and 
and uh, and how everything goes on in your day-to-day working life. So it's, it's great. Cool. I appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting me on. Hey, before I go, I've got to mention the ASCA. They do so much for strength and conditioning coaches in this industry. I keep harping on about it, but even something that Jan brought up, like when I first started, I'd go to a conference, there were maybe four females at a conference of 200 people at a strength and conditioning conference. Crazy. Um, they do, they've done so much for bringing like gender equality, whatever you want to call it, bringing more females into the industry, and, and, and it's, it's sorely needed. Um, of course, there's the professional developments, there's the special interest groups, which have been going gangbusters. There's one in every major city in Australia. Um, also got to mention Val Performance before I go. Like I said, great support of the ASCA and this podcast. Wonderful company. Check them out, valperformance.com. I'll be back next episode with more audible gold for you. So look, until you hear from me next, I'm Joseph Coyne. This is the ASCA Podcast.